decline of Christianity in American culture and the loss of influence of Jesus' church is the result of many issues, perhaps none as great as the evangelical church's conclusions about our future. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind series have influenced the vast majority of Christians to anticipate the imminent rise of a dominant figure that will control the world's political, economic, and religious systems and will plunge this world into the Great Tribulation. Is that actually what the Bible teaches us? Have you, or those you know, seriously considered what the book of Revelation teaches? If you are like the majority of people today, you've accepted those ideas without a lot of serious consideration or study. In this series, Dr. Russ McKendry is teaching through the book of Revelation to reveal what it actually says about your future, the role of Jesus' church, and the practical implications those conclusions have on your worldview and everyday life. We hope that you'll join us for this entire series and increase in confidence about what you believe and why. Now, here's Russ with Overcoming Bystander Christianity. Uh, this is Revelation chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 14. <clears throat> then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the, elder, <clears throat> the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, for those of you that have been following our, our study, we're just moving through the book a verse at a time. And we're basically trying to, uh, to look and to see what is going on. We, we've titled the whole series overcoming bystander Christianity because 
I believe that the book of Revelation and the way it's understood in the minds of many Christians today has really justified them to pretty much stand on the sidelines. The church isn't doing anything close to what it once did in not only our country but around the world. And there has to be some reasons that we can understand about why that's happening. And I, I think the way that people understand the book of Revelation is really key to that. Um, back in the beginning, we saw that John's first vision of Jesus was in chapter 1. And then today is the second vision of, of Jesus that he records in chapter 5. The third one is, is in chapter 19. Now, the way the three of these kind of fit together is pretty interesting because chapter 1 and chapter 19 are essentially the same vision. They, in chapter 1, he, he is seeing a vision of Jesus that's very different than this one, and yet you're going to see a lot of coherence for the way they fit together. In chapter 19 is essentially the same vision, and there he's, he's actually riding on a white steed with a sword that's having gone out of his mouth into the world. But it's important to understand this one if you're going to understand, I think, a major part of the flow of the book. I told you last week that chapter 4 began what is the first major prophecy in the book. It goes from chapter 4, verse 1 to the end of chapter 9. And the second major prophecy starts in chapter 10 and continues to the end of the book. Um, but this, this view of Jesus, the second vision, that John gives us is a very interesting vision because that is the one that we're intended to hold in our mind as these events begin to unfold as Jesus begins to open or break the seals on the scroll. Now, this morning as we begin to focus on who Jesus is, I, I want to show you a couple of images that I think have got a lot of attraction. This is not Jesus. Now, many people think this is Jesus. If you Google Jesus, if you look at images of Jesus, it seems like this is the most popular view of Jesus. But this isn't what John saw. Now, the second one, I'm not sure who this is. That's definitely not Jesus. And the, the little wink in the right eye is I have no idea what they're trying to communicate there, but that's not Jesus either. And so we're going to take a few moments this morning, and I want you to focus and concentrate because there's going to be some things in here that I think we're going to speak. Now, many of you bring non-Christians and even atheists to our services, and we're glad that happens. I always try to talk to you in, in a way that would cause you to think, wow, I wish my friends were here to, here to, to hear this. Um, I, can't, I, I can't do that all the time. But this morning, I, for those of you that have been invited by a friend or you lost a bet and had to come, um, I, I want you to know that, that I, I'm hoping to communicate some things this morning that if you're not a Christian, that maybe will help quiet some of the dissidents about what you're seeing in Jesus' church in the United States and what you have seen in the lives of many Christians. Because I really think the way you live is going to be directly proportional to the way you view Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that the Father and the Holy Spirit, the other members of the Trinities, aren't important. They are. But the way you view Jesus is, is going to determine a lot about your motivation and your diligence as a Christian. And unfortunately, on behalf of Christianity, I would apologize to many of you because I think the views of Jesus that are held in the minds of people today are far too low. 
And I think this book is really an amazing portrait of how we're supposed to see him, how we're supposed to understand his authority, his insight, his communion with our own lives. And I think the view of Jesus that's held in the minds of even many Christians today, maybe even the majority of Christians, is far too low. And I believe that once we begin to see him rightly, things begin to change in our lives. So hopefully this will be a kind of a learning process for us all. The first thing I want you to consider is really this scene, because the scene is described kind of in figurative language. I think John is just using kind of the language that he has to describe deatific things. In other words, he, he's seeing things that are hard to describe. And he's just doing the best that he can. And I don't believe it's deficient. I, I, I believe that it's important for us just to understand that. In verse 1, he starts by just saying, then, then I, I say in the right hand, I see in the right hand of him who, who was seated on the throne. And so the setting is still the throne of God. It's still what was started in chapter 4, which is the beginning of the first major prophecy. It's still the throne. Now, if you'll remember from chapter 4, the audience or the, the setting that he was looking at in chapter 4, you had God the Father on the throne. You had people there and represented in the 24 elders. I told you last week that's probably best understood as representing you, the church. So there was God the Father, there was human beings, and then there were angels that he describes as four living creatures that are very similar to what Ezekiel described in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, this setting adds four more pieces. So there's no deductions, there's just additions. And the first addition is that he mentions in, in verse 2 this strong angel. Now, there's no name given to us. It's possible that Michael was was throughout Scripture, Michael is the warring angel, and it's possible it was Michael. Um, Gabriel is the kind of the messenger or the announcing angel. If you remember, he was the one that told Zacharias that he and Elizabeth were going to have John the Baptist as a son. And Gabriel was also the one that announced to Mary that she would have Jesus. And so it's possible that it was Michael or Gabriel. We don't know. All John says is that this amazingly mighty angel showed up. The second edition is Jesus. And this would have been a very significant transaction because I've told you that I believe these events are not taking that long. It's possible all of this is still on the same day that John introduces us to, which was the Lord's Day in chapter 1. And Jesus shows up and this thundering voice and then he immediately begins to dictate to him the messages that he would send to the seven churches. Then John is taken in the Spirit into the throne room of heaven, and as soon as he describes this vision of God the Father's throne, then he sees Jesus again. And it's possible that all of this has taken place maybe in just a few moments, maybe a few hours. We don't know. But the grammatical connections and the way that it's written would cause us to say this isn't a long span of time. And so John now sees Jesus in a second way in just a few moments. And it says in verse 6 that between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, this initial setting in John, or excuse me, that he described in chapter 4, I saw the Lamb. Now this is obviously 
Jesus that he's now describing, but he's describing him very differently than he did in chapter 1. So there's kind of a transition. John still knows who it is. The third addition to this setting is there's a lot more angels. In fact, in verse 11, it says, When I looked, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. We don't know that John is actually seeing them, but the presence of their voice is very real. And John knows this is a huge cast of angels. The fourth thing that is addition to the setting, which is now, you can in your mind's eye think of a, a movie that is now kind of panning out and it's beginning to, to gather a greater perspective of the audience. The last thing is that he describes a cosmic or global audience. Now, this is really important for you to get the rest of the book because from this scene, Jesus is going to begin to open the seals and everything's going out. But John actually tells us that the whole created order is watching this and they're participating in this. And so the scope of this is really important to the overall flow of the book. It's not necessary to place all of these people at the throne. John's just merely describing that he knows that they're there and he knows what they're saying. Now, the importance of understanding verse 13 is that it requires us to see this global significance. It's not just localized. It's, ju it's just not going to a big church with, say, 10,000 people in it, and then you're hearing all this wonderful worship. This is cosmic, what he's describing. And so those are the four editions. This is how the setting and the, the kind of the scene expands out, and that takes us to probably the most important part of this is the, the scroll. In verse 1, it says, The scroll that is written within and on the back, it's sealed with seven seals. Now, the word for scroll is, is the Greek word biblion. Now, we transliterate that into our English word Bible. Now, it's interesting that the term itself was used in several different ways in ancient Greek. It was used of a book, a scroll, a rolled-up book, uh, writing, but it was all also used of legal documents, particularly of a decree for divorce. It's used that way in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 7. And so this is an important document. And what you begin to see by this is that there's, there's several facets of this I want to lead out to make sure you're kind of drawing your attention to this, is that John tells us first that it's, it's held by the Father, which he describes it to be held in his right hand. Now, throughout the Bible, the right hand of God was the strong hand of God. So when something was to your right and something was to your left, it was a significant positioning. But he's holding it in his right hand, which is indicating that it's the strength of the Father that's in view. The second thing that we see is that it's covered on the front and the back. Now, the ESV renders this. It's written within and on the back. But Basically, what, whatever this scroll is, no matter, we don't know exactly the size of it. It could be really big instead of just some little thing that you would think of. Um, but John is able to perceive it. When he first beholds it, he can tell this thing's covered. This is not just a, a few, like a, a, you know, a post-it pad with a few jotted notes down on it. It's completely covered. And so the content of it is pretty substantial in John's first impression. The third thing that we can observe from the text is that it's sealed with seven seals. Now, I've mentioned a couple of times up till now that the, 
The seals are substantial. They're significant. Because when the angel says, who can open them? There's no one worthy to open them. Now, another significance that has come into play in chapter 6 is as, as Jesus cracks each one of the seals open, there's, there is some serious beating going out. And it's coming from him. It's not some confused, you know, rebellion in some part of the world that God doesn't have control over. And John's watching something happen on earth and God's wringing his hands wishing it wasn't happened. That's not it. The vision is nobody can do this but Jesus. And when he starts to crack the seals, you're going to see in chapter 6, with each of the seals unfolds other things. He's going to show you that bowls and trumpets come out of the seventh of each of the sequences too. And so you're virtually going to watch the consequences of this scroll being opened throughout the book. Now, I think that is a substantial deviation from what many of you have probably perceived. This is not the Left Behind series. This is Jesus actually commencing something, starting it, after John weeps, thinking it's never going to get started. And so the seals have tremendous significance, and they're going to become more important as we move through. The last thing is the importance or the significance of the scroll is explained by John in verses 2 to 4. And he says, I, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Obviously, John wanted to, to find out what was in the scroll to the point that he's moved to mourning and to weeping. And so the importance of the scroll, I think, is very, very significant to retain. Now, let me show you a couple of verses taken from Ezekiel 2. Now, the concurrence or the agreement between the book of Revelation and the book of Ezekiel is more than any other book in the Bible. We saw that in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel's describing, you know, the the four beings with the wheels and the faces and covered with eyes and they're just kind of hovering around the throne. That's exactly what John described about the throne in, in chapter 4. But in chapter 2, Ezekiel sees the same scroll. And this is what he says in verse 9 and 10. He says, When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. You see, it's not sealed yet. And so sometime between the vision that Ezekiel had and now, it's been sealed and it can't be opened. But Ezekiel gets to look at it. And he said it had, it had writing on the front and the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. And the significance of this is that this is a major theme of the whole book of Revelation. Now, what's interesting is that if you read Ezekiel, particularly chapter, chapter 16 and chapter 23, the complaints, the charges that are on the scroll, the scroll is covered with charges against Israel. And Israel is described as two nations, the division of Israel that would come after uh, e Ezekiel, that you've got the division of the northern tribes of the ten and then the, the two tribes to the south, what were known as Judah, and they've become a harlot. They've completely denied their faith with God. They've broken with him to worship the idolatry, uh, the, the idols of the countries around them. And God says that they've actually become worse than the other countries. 
And so what the scroll is, is actually a divorce decree. It's written by God, and Ezekiel foresaw it, and John is looking at it right before the seals were opened. That is a very significant aspect of the book. The divorcing of an unfaithful harlot bride and Jesus taking a new chaste bride at the wedding feast of the Lamb that we're going to see in chapter 19. A little ways away. Um, but in the end, the book can be understood that way. It's a tale of two brides. One that whores after those around her and becomes unfit and unsuitable and described graphically in, in Ezekiel chapter 16 and again in Ezekiel chapter 23 that God actually puts away and divorces with this decree. And then a chaste bride that Jesus has bought for himself. And once the divorce is complete, he marries the new bride in chapter 19. The book can actually be seen, as we're going to see in later chapters, as the tale of two cities. An old Jerusalem that is completely destroyed and a new one that comes down to earth from heaven. And once you begin to get those rails to understand what's going on, the book isn't near as weird. And you really can put Left Behind series away forever. Um, so, this is God's bill of divorce. It's all the events that are proceeding from God's throne as Jesus begins to open the seal. It's not out of control. God's not fretting. And there's no one in heaven that's saying, wow, this is really, really bad. They're all waiting to see what's going to happen when the seal's broken. Now, the next thing that we see is John's description of Jesus. Now, there's two parts to it. What John is told and what John sees. Now, I believe John has to be told some things to, to, uh, to kind of guide his perception. Now, I've given you a, very, a picture of a very famous psychological assessment. Now, some of you in this room are looking at a beautiful woman looking away from you. And you see her hair and her eyelash and her nose kind of looking behind her. Now, the rest of you are looking at a very ugly old woman and her long chin and her very large nose, somebody was very cruel, and her eyes. And you see there's really two pictures there. But most people, when they first see it, they only apprehend one, and they, they're convinced that that's the only one that they can see, but there's always been another one there. And I believe that what we're going to see here in this description, John has to be told some things in order to not miss them. His perception is being guided as ours is, that we might not overlook some things that we might not observe just with our naked eye. Now, we see here that what John is told is two different statements that are to guide his perception. In verse 5, he's told that this is the line of the tribe of Judah. Now, this is taken from Genesis 49.10, where, where Jacob, or Israel, is now blessing each of his 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes, and he says there, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He's saying that Judah is going to be a ruler of the whole tribe of Israel. And so this remembrance in John's mind as a Jew would pull that back to say, this is pretty significant. This is the line of the tribe of Judah. And, and he's told another thing in verse 5. It says, the root 
of David has conquered. Now, this is actually taken from three different places, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1 as well as verse 10. But Paul uses it in Romans 15 and verse 12. He says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who, ari who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. You see, the Jews anticipated the rising of, of David the root of David. Somebody was going to come from this line of David and he was going to be the conqueror of the whole entire world. And so John is told to kind of dial the lens a little bit and to sharpen his focus about what he's looking at. He's told those two things. This is the line of Judah and it's the root of, uh, of David has conquered. Now what John sees on his own, he also tells us. What he sees in verse 6, he said, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so he's looking at a lamb standing there. Now again, this language, you could say, well, this, this is gibberish. It doesn't make sense. I think he must be doing mushrooms. Um, because how could he be standing and he's, as if he's been slain? It looks like a lamb that's dead. And it's, it's, it's interesting because he's capturing something here that his own gospel emphasizes more than all the other gospels. In John 1 and verse 29, John records the words of John the Baptist when he first lays eyes on Jesus in his public ministry. When they were cousins, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. And when John looks at him, he says in John 1, 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus always was said to be the Lamb. He was the one. Now, the significance of this is the place that Jesus' death played with Israel. Because the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, the writer of Hebrews simply tells us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so all of those saints in the Old Testament, Abraham and David and, and Jacob, all of them, when they died, their sin hadn't been forgiven. They were by faith trusting what God had given them thus far and God would faithfully uphold his promise to them, but their sin wasn't technically forgiven. And so John, when he looks at Jesus, he said, there's the lamb that's going to take away the sin. There he is. And the rest of them are, John, when he sees this, he said, in heaven, those wounds are still there. I can tell it's Jesus. I can tell his death. I can see these wounds on him. And this is pretty substantial. One commentator said of this that the supreme power, the supreme self-sacrifice that Jesus led, gave, leads to his supreme power. And it's interesting that those wounds were still visible to John. John knew exactly who he was. Now, the second thing that John tells us that he sees is in the balance of verse 6. And I don't know how much our head can get around this. That he's looking at this lamb and he's seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. I believe these are heavenly things being described with earthly language. And John just simply doing the best he can. These seven horns covered with seven eyes, that, that's kind of weird. But he tells us this is actually the Spirit of God. Now, his power and knowledge are what are being depicted by the horns of strength, and the eyes would be his knowledge. It's really depicting Jesus' omniscience 
and his omnipotence, his power and his wisdom. In, in Zechariah in the Old Testament, in chapter 3, verse 9, and again in chapter 4, verse 10, there's this promise that the Messiah will remove iniquity from the land. And it describes him this way. He said, the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Now the implication to you is you need to live your life. And I, I used to have a, the dean of my seminary died the first year. He was a wonderful man. He had a terrible bout with cancer. And, and everybody prayed and, and they told him he was cancer free. And at, at the December break, right before Christmas, he, he did a chapel service, and he said, I, I, I don't think that I've ever grown the way I, I grew when I knew I was about to die. And he said, I've recovered in the sense I don't have any cancer. And he said, the growth in my spirit was so substantial that I've asked, I actually asked God, if I need to be sick to grow, then make me sick again. And he was dead by spring. He, he always said something that, um, that, uh, that really rang true with me. He said, you need to practice the presence of God. You can't expect your mind always just to remember because we're too lazy to do that and it's too uncomfortable to do that. But these pictures, this description of Jesus is to intend, intend you to hold that. When you go in and no one's home and you do things that you wouldn't want anyone to know, He's there. Those eyes see you. They roam to and fro in the earth. And see, some of us are so naive that we lose sight of that. And one day God will show what you thought nobody ever knew. And this is a frightening thing. It's a statement of his power and a statement of his intimate knowledge of everything. Now, it brings us to this last point, the worship. Now, the worship at the throne is actually a hymn. And this could be the coolest part for some of you that are really trying to get at some Cool takeaways. This is actually a song that's sung in three parts. The first part is the living creatures and the elders together around the throne are joining in the first clause. And they're saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. So they're singing to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. That's the first part. The second part is the elders only, the human beings. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The third part is sung only by the living creatures. And you have made them a kingdom of priests. See, the living creatures now are singing about human beings that have been saved. You have made them a kingdom of priests who are God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, that's the worship that he sees at the throne. Now, the second lens is now wide open, 
And he shows you the worship of the entire creation. And we can see that by the movement from verse 11 where it says the voice of many angels. And then in verse 13 he says, it's every creature now. Under the earth, on the earth, in the seas, it's everything. And so this is opening up. And I think the best illustration I can give you to, to see this would be like dropping a pebble into a pond. And you see the initial pop that would come up, and then there's immediately rings that are going out. John now is standing at the furthest ring, and he is saying everything is involved in this. This encapsulates everything. There's no place to hide. There's no part of the created order that will not be engaged in what is about to take place. Now, having given that description, I want you to look again in verses 11 to 14. I want you to hear the scene. I want you to hear what the scroll is now. I want you to listen to the description of Jesus and what is actually said. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, number myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every, now you can hear the crescendo, you can hear it coming. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, to the Father and to his Son, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now let me show you what I think is kind of the parent on the backside of it. It's just like an open parenthesis. And John now has opened like a portal of the whole created order from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven. Listen to what he says is what, what is described as the great white throne judgment in chapter 20. In verse 13 and 14, he simply says, The sea gave up her dead, who were in, the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. You see the authority of Jesus is sustained through all of that? There's no, it's not as if it ever can be recontained. What John opens up will never be closed. And the implications of the events are truly remarkable. Now, what does this mean to you? Well, I started by showing you some pretty stupid pictures of Jesus. If you've got them in your Bible, I'm sorry, kind of. But that's not what John saw. And I think what's happening is that we've created kind of a bias that we can't think of Jesus as knowing every part of you. So some of you live week after week doing things. You wouldn't want your friends to know you do because you don't believe he's there with you. Some of you continue to, to get intimidated and your knees even shake when you face some of the ferocity of the resistance that's in our world. And I believe this was intended to cause you to want to wear this jersey and not the one that you put on when you were a kid. Yeah. 
that never did anything for you. John intended you to be inspired by the winner. And I think far too many of us hold on to a faith that's pretty lame, to be honest with you. I've counseled with you all for 21 years. I know how many times you go in and out, and it's normal to doubt. I, I think God allows us to have that because He's most honored when in our humanity we work through our doubts. But He never requires you to act as if you believe something you really don't. And I think far too many people in the church today have put themselves in the church trying to convince them of self, themselves of something they're not really convinced of. And if that's you, it's, it's time for you to just to come out and admit it and try to work through it. If you're hanging on to a faith by your fingernails and you know you're not going to last much longer, then just admit it. The church is here to help you understand Jesus, not to cause you to think that somehow you're going to be on the JV or the bench the rest of your life. If you allow yourself to sit on the bench, this bystander Christianity, it's no one's fault but your own. Because this is a real faith, and there's real power, and there's a real future. And so I pray that this vision will be a lasting one for you. I pray that the impression would somehow blow away these notions of Jesus pointing his finger at you and winking. He's a powerful God. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the world you live in because it was by the will of His Father that it was created and by His will it exists. There's nothing wrong. And so you're, if you're going to live in the shadows of Christianity, then I encourage you to just acknowledge where you're at. There's nothing wrong. I was there for 10 years. And so if there's hope for me, there's hope for many of you too. Don't continue that way. All right, let's take your questions. Wow. Even after that extra encouragement, there's no questions. I don't know. I, I, all I can say is that Jesus knows. So, All right, let me close in prayer and uh, we'll finish our worship together in our communion. Father, there is a, there's a burden on my heart that's in many ways greater than I can explain. Because I, I've looked into the eyes of men and women over the years that even for decades played a game. And the, their faith never really got much traction. They never really engaged it. They, they didn't study their Bibles. and They weren't really serious about engaging the gospel in their life. And so consequently, when, when something happens tragically, a cancer diagnosis, a financial reversal, a, a death of a loved one, a husband cheating, they go to a piggy bank where there's, no, there's nothing there. There's been no installments. There's been no building of a faith that would have some resource. And it's not that you've turned your back on them. It's that somewhere along the way they were taught that they can have the Christian life with no obedience, with no holiness, 
and with no diligence. And yet Paul told Timothy, one of the closest young men to, men to him before he died, that he needed to be diligent to show himself approved. And that's true of all of us. The metaphors of Christianity are a farmer, an athlete, and a warrior. If the farmer isn't diligent, he'll starve. If the warrior doesn't train, he'll die. And if an athlete doesn't apply herself or himself to the task, she's going to be embarrassed. And yet many of us sit in complete apathy towards our faith because we've been told perhaps for decades that it's all done and we don't have to do anything. But there is a necessity of our obedience. There's an accountability that we will give for this profession of faith. And it'd be better not to profess him than to profess him and not live. And James simply tells us that a faith that has no working to it is a faith that cannot save because it's dead. And so in these moments, I pray that there would be a lot of confession and repentance in the parts of people that might be sitting here or listening in the days to come where they have to admit that the thing that they're holding to doesn't have any power or life to it at all. Because I know that that's the first step of overcoming it. And it takes courage and it takes a desire to be real. And so, Father, help us this morning to turn loose of some stupid ideas of Jesus and embrace those ideas that you told John to tell us to embrace. I pray that you would receive our worship from our hands as something that would honor you. We thank you for these things this, this morning, for we ask them in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to the L2 Sermon Series, Overcoming Bystander Christianity, taught by Dr. Russ McHenry. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, email feedback at l2today.com. And thanks for listening.